Hello, Guilty Feminist. This is Deborah. We're heading off to Australia and New Zealand, where we will be appearing live and recording an episode in Christchurch on the 11th of May, Auckland on the 14th of May, Wellington on the 15th of May, Adelaide on the 18th of May, Perth on the 20th, Sydney on the 23rd, Melbourne on the 25th, Brisbane on the 27th, and finally Canberra on the 28th of May. So get in and get your tickets now. They are going very fast. Please go to guiltyfeminist.com and just click on live shows for any of these events. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm a feminist, but... I just did the 100th episode of The Guilty Feminist at the Palladium, and uh, I saw an amazing photo of me with Gina, who works with me, and without Gina, really, I'm just some ideas in bed. And uh, she was there on stage with me, and I brought her out to say how much I owed her, and I sent her this picture saying, this picture means so much to me. And she sent back like a little crying emoji, and then I sent, because we both look thin in it. (laughs) But we we look... (laughs) slimmer than we are. Now, I know that thin doesn't equal better. I know I've been persuaded by the patriarchy to think that, and I fight very hard against that thought. It's nice to look thin in a picture, though, isn't it, But in in that moment, in that moment, I thought, ooh. I'm a feminist, but I don't know what I've done to my two-year-old son, but the other day, I had to wear a pencil skirt for a casting, and he went, what's that? (laughs) You... Very smart. And I said, it's a skirt. And he he went, skirt. I like that skirt. Skirts for mummies. Then the next day he said, skirt for you again. (laughs) Hashtag my my sexist baby. (gasps) Oh my God. Oh, my God, Jess. I know, he's two. Wow. Yeah. Sometimes he just says, don't talk, mummy. Oh, he's going to be such a mansplainer, isn't he? He's going to grow up and explain to girls what skirts are. I'm a feminist, but I saw myself in a picture of the 100th episode of The Guilty Feminist in fishnet tights. Mm. It was the same photo where I thought I looked thin. And I decided that my legs looked so shapely, I would never not wear fishnet stockings again. (laughs) And I texted that to Gina too. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) I'm a feminist, but I've decided to embrace the fact that we've got a sexist baby. (laughs) So for a laugh, we've taught him that when I've got period cramps, if anyone says, why does mummy's tummy hurt? Now he replies, because of the sins of Eve. (laughs) No, okay. No wonder he's saying you had a skirt. 
<laughs> because of the sins of Eve. <laughs> Did you have a child just so you could teach him to say inappropriate things? Like a dog who can talk? <laughs> and to carry stuff for me. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but I'm wearing fishnets right now. <laughs> Fit, jeez! Wow. I'm a feminist, but I got a laugh out of that Sins of Eve thing, and in reality, it was entirely my partner's joke. Oh! Well, Did it was his idea. It was no, it was his idea. We've rolled it into fruition as a team, but I felt like I <laughs> couldn't be perfect feminist without admitting that a yep. man had been involved at some point in the creation of that joke and child. <laughs> we assumed he'd sired the child. We didn't know it was his semen that had created the gag. <laughs> Live from King's Place in London, the Spontaneous Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, guest co-host Jessica foster the cast and creators of The Jungle, the play, talking about story. This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. Have you had a guilty week or a feminist week, Jess? I've had a feminist week. Have you? What have mm. you done? Writing in an all-women's writer's room for a new pilot that I think is going to be the absolute tits. <laughs> Yay! And yes, our periods have synced. <laughs> that is a little Ten bit true. Ten days early, fuckers. Um, that is a little bit true. <laughs> but also, I've, none of us have ever known a writer's room like it. We'll be like, should we develop that idea? I think it was Jenny's idea. And they'll go, um, I, I think you'll find actually, Je Jenny will go, excuse me, actually, I just, you should know that that was actually Sophie's idea. Um, I, I, can't let, I can't take credit for that. Like, it is... <laughs> There's so much amplification and deflection, it is hilarious. So... Yeah, well, yesterday, Deborah wanted to talk about it. I'm going, well, I did want to talk about it, but only because I'd heard the idea from Jess. <laughs> she brought that idea into the room, and I just do want that acknowledged. I know she's not here, but it's important that you know if you weren't here, your idea would also be acknowledged. It's the That's best awesome. ever. I don't and want to work And this. let's not dilly-dally. We're being very productive. No, oh, God, yeah, yeah, I've yeah. I've never known a writer's room like that, either. No, where well, actual things are actual written. graft is occurring. Mm, it's impressive. <laughs> Speaking also, I did a, a live radio thing and I did a good feminist standing up for... Did you? ...women, yeah. What did you do? Howard Jacobson was on, who's a very famous author, and he was talking about Philip Roth, who passed away this week, mm. who's a bit of a cunt about women. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, had a he was saying... Oh, I mean, there's probably a more articulate way to put it, but he... <laughs> so, it's not that, quite, a, message quite an out misogynist. And he was saying that Philip had been asked recently to write something in response to the Me Too movement and that he'd just written an exquisite piece about how um, the male erotic urge is irresistible and how women will never understand that. And they couldn't possibly because they're not a man and they'll never be a man. And he was saying, you can't judge him as a writer on his misogyny. And I said, no, but you can as a person. <laughs> Anyway, the conversation went on and I held my own a few times and then at the end, the presenter of the show, who's a lovely person, said, off air, you're ever so feisty. <laughs> feisty, a word reserved for women with opinions. <laughs> now, 
We are talking today about story and the power of story. Mm. The reason that I want to talk about this, uh, you may have noticed that Ireland repealed the eights. <laughs> now, we said that at Oxford on Saturday night at the Oxford Playhouse, and they gave it a standing ovation, but all right, London. <laughs> You don't stand up in London, someone will take your seat. Now, it's all right. It's true, though. It's all right in Oxford. Um, but Ireland, we are so thrilled for you, and we are here, we stand with you, or we'll sit in this case, we sit with you in sisterly <laughs> solidarity. But here's some statistics that I thought were interesting. This is what swayed voters to vote the way they did. 7% said it was through direct contact with campaigners. 10% said posters affected how they voted. 34% cited the experience of someone who they know... And 43% of people said it was people's personal stories that were told to the media. 43% of people who were swayed were swayed by personal stories of people they didn't know. And that's really interesting because I think when it's people you do know, you think, oh, well, yeah, this is my principle, this is my feeling, but my sister Susie, she's a special case. Or, you know, I don't like gay people, but Uncle Harry, he's just, just how he is. You've probably heard people who have sounded very racist but said, but my neighbour is the exception to that racism. When you know somebody, it can be very powerful to know somebody, but it's interesting that in this case, certainly more people were swayed by the stories of people they didn't know. And I think it's because you can't make exceptions for people you don't know. When you hear story after story after story and you start to empathise, story builds empathy and that's why it sways people. Now, most of our activism is 280 angry characters... Angry facts don't change minds, but story does. Mm. So tonight we want to look at the power of story in yeah. feminism and its role. Funny stories, sad stories, silly stories, but personal stories. Yeah, I mean, I think it's invaluable. I think it would be very strange to be like, yeah, story's fine, but I'm not really moved by the experience of others. I prefer, <laughs> prefer sort of, yeah, stats and theories. <laughs> It's true, though, but that's what we use when not, we want to convince... Not applied but when we, to when we, when we want to convince people, we often use stats and theories, and it doesn't change people. I but re- like you're saying about stories spreading, I was just reading about the person that wrote that cat person story. Oh, yeah. It's just, yeah, it's now got a career as a narrative writer. It's not, that's not the point, though, Jess, that you'll get a better career yeah, if you tell is. a story. If you expand beyond Twitter and start a blog. You'll be well in there. No, I don't think it is. But also, but I, I think you, you yeah. can spread emotion without the full... If you, apparently, anger is the quickest emotion to spread on social media. Yeah. Through Twitter and stuff like that. So and if you can be ang- countering that with something perhaps more complex... Anger is useful. It's a useful motivator. And some days it's all you've got. But if you have got more, then explaining through story will build more empathy mm. than you... I don't think my mind's ever been changed by somebody shouting at me. Dickens did more than Marx in this country for social change because Marx had theories that people didn't like or understand. But when people read about Oliver Twist and he was an orphan, they went, oh, but, oh. And Dickens deliberately made him a rich orphan that had fallen into the system accidentally so that rich people could understand it and go, oh, it could be my baby. Oh, well, that's not okay. If it's a poor baby, sure. (laughs) Fine. God. I know. Um, Um, Yeah, Sorry, I've interrupted it. If I had more to say, and it turns out I just wanted to say, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 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 uh. 
Hello, Guilty Feminist. This is Deborah Francis White from The Guilty Feminist. Briefly interrupting your podcast listening to say that I have a book coming out. You can pre-order it at Waterstones, waterstones.com. You can either go to guiltyfeminist.com to get the link to pre-order it, or you can just Google Waterstones Guilty Feminist book hardback. Also, I am on a book tour where I'm going to be talking about the book, signing the book, generally chatting to you, saying hi. There are events associated with this in London, Birmingham, Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, Glasgow and Brighton currently, all in September. And you can also find these at guiltyfeminist.com or Waterstones events. I'd love you to order the book. There's lots of new stuff in it as well as old favourites. And I'm really excited about it. And I hope you are too. And I hope you really, really enjoy it. There are some shows coming up. There are six tickets left for the BFI Southbank show this Saturday, 16th of June in London. Grab those while you can. It's me, Natlet Seema and Yasmin Akram. And we are showing a short. We've just put a new show on on the 23rd of June at the Old Vic in London. So there's plenty of tickets left. I'm co-hosting that with Cindy V. And the guests are Juliet Stevenson, an actress you'll know from many of your favourite films and television shows, and her daughter, Rosalind Brodie, who is taking a new play about mothers and daughters up to Edinburgh. And we are discussing together mother-daughter relationships and also some themes for Amnesty International. Our profits from this show will go to Amnesty. Uh, So get tickets very, very soon. It's going to be a wonderful night. A combination of fun, direct action. And then there are also some tickets left, not very many, but some for The Guilty Feminist, Friday the 29th of June at the Roundhouse in Camden. There is going to be a debate, which is very exciting. Nish Kumar, me, Rubes Walsh, Felicity Ward, Brona Titley and various other people debating. And there's also going to be a special performance of Suffragettin. So get tickets now while you can for the Roundhouse on the 29th of June. And then also uh, the Regent's Park Open Air Theatre. There are a few tickets left there too for the 15th of July. I'm doing that, co-hosting that with Felicity Ward. 15th of July, Regent's Park Open Air Theatre. Come and join us. It's a lovely venue and we'll have a glass of rosé. And finally, the Edinburgh Festival is sold out, but we do have a show in Newcastle on Monday 17th of September. Please book now for that and we'll keep you abreast of anything else coming up. Have a wonderful Guilty Feminist Week and see you soon. Welcome to the stage, the wonderful Jessica Foster Q. Cheers, thank you. Hello, you all right? Good. I'll tell you a story. A little while ago, I heaved out a baby. Uh, You're correct not to care. Of overpopulation. I knew about the overpopulation and overconsumption, and I did it anyway. Selfish. <laughs> Just to set my stall out from the off, I'm very fit and well, and my son is a giant, happy, healthy two and a half year old unit. <laughs> I was so excited to be pregnant. I very, very much wanted a baby. I got all the advice from the midwives and all the rest of my middle class around me about the two types of birth I could choose from. I could either have a clinicalised, hospital bed, drug-filled, manic birth, or if I wanted, I could have a lovely one. <laughs> 
I decided I'd like a lovely one, please. I read all three pamphlets and I got very excited about the serene, hypnotised, potentially orgasmic and crucially pain-free water birth that I'd have. Mmm. Lovely. Friends would tell me their harrowing birth stories and I'd think, oof, poor them. Thank God I've chosen a lovely birth. <laughs> During my pregnancy, one friend who'd given birth six months before told me uh, she knew she'd opted in advance for an epidural uh, because she said she knew she already that she didn't fail, deal very well with physical pain. And I chuckled. I remember thinking, that sounds like exactly when to opt for an epidural. And that's why I won't need it, because I am very strong. I'm actually wonderful with pain. <laughs> I'm always lifting such heavy shopping. And when I was 13, my PE teacher said in front of the whole class, you, Jessica, are an absolute powerhouse. <laughs> Admittedly at the time, that was mortifying. Now, a 34-year-old proud feminist, I love being called a powerhouse. Admittedly, no, I'm not a perfect feminist, and if they're going to call me a powerhouse, I'd still rather it was about my career as well as my huge, muscly legs. <laughs> I won't need drugs or help. I'm a coper, a really independent powerhouse of coping. Anyway, I was so gleeful at the news that hypnobirthing meant I could simply choose not to feel pain, and I didn't even finish my book about it. I had some CDs to listen to, but they would send me to sleep in minutes. Even better, I thought. The training is going to go in extra deep if I'm getting it subliminally in the night time. <laughs> what is it, hypnobirthing? As I recall, breathing in and then out. <laughs> A few pages into the book, I'm like, nailed it. You had to do things like imagining your tuppence as a flower, thinking about a silver glove. <laughs> Don't think they meant like on a suit of armour, I assume they're more sort of like super jug exfoliating shower mitt. <laughs> I don't know, I never finished the course. <laughs> and the other bit of hypnobirthing was about being positive about everything. You had to go, there's no such thing as pain. Contractions are called surges. You won't need to push. You can just cough it out with an particularly intense love feelings. And anyone who says to you that labour or childbirth hurts should be shut out of your life forever. <laughs> My due date loomed and as instructed, I shunned anyone who was worried or nervous about me as negative influences. Get away from me, I chanted. You'll upset my flowers and gloves. <laughs> my due date came, exciting! And then that day passed, and then another day passed, then another day did, then another ten days did. <laughs> curry, walking, nipple sex, curry, walking, pineapple, walking, wanking, curry, nipple wanks, curry, curry, mainly curry. And then my labour started. Tweaks and twinges for about 12 hours. I walked for miles, meeting friends for lots of decaf coffee. See, I thought, this is easy. And then it actually started. <laughs> At the end of my road. It took me an hour to get 100 metres. Every time I got more than three steps, I'd have to stop, bend over a neighbour's wall or hedge, and quietly growl, stunned, white-knuckle and sweaty everything in a pain suddenly so severe, I couldn't see. <laughs> I crawled retching to the front door of my flat. <laughs> And then up the stairs, Mikey, my partner, got home and, like we'd always planned, started making us sandwiches. 
course he did. And timing both the length of my contractions and the gaps between them using the app we'd downloaded. Of course we had. <laughs> Whilst I lovingly explained to him, there are no gaps between them! <laughs> there were some gaps between them. There were 30 second gaps between bouts of pain lasting between three and 15 minutes, a pain so all-consuming it was otherworldly. I felt like all of my insides had grown personalities of their own, fallen in love, fallen out again, and gone to war. <laughs> Still searingly arrogant, however, my first hazy thoughts at this point were, hang on, no one could breathe through this pain. No one could ignore this, because this isn't meant to happen until the end, which means this must be the end. <laughs> I'm going to have one of those births that's all really intense, but over in an hour. We're going to hospital now, I sang to Mikey. In the large public waiting room at the hospital, that's where I began to do screaming. <laughs> Full, system of a down, Ramstein guttural, animal visceral screaming. Maybe that's where the lyrics of the Ramstein song comes from. Here comes the sun. <laughs> Finally... An hour and a half later, we were seen into an examination room. Even after all that wait, we were apparently jumping the queue a bit because of a mixture of availability and the distress I was causing to those around me. <laughs> Once in the examinating room, the door closed. Finally, I thought, I can push! Mikey told them she already wants to push, so they rushed to examine me, and I imagined the head coming back up with a little slippery baby in it. Actually, it came back up and went... You're only two centimetres. <laughs> that basically meant I wasn't in labour. <laughs> this wasn't even the start of it. <laughs> My baby had turned back to back the wrong way round, hence the wanting to push and there being no let up in contractions despite not technically even being in labour, but the pain, the death wish level pain was just the normal start of the process. <laughs> Then I had another contraction, so I screamed and screamed and shouted and begged for every possible drug under the sun. Knock me out! Knock me out, please! And they said, yes, what you'll need to do for now is go back home and try a few paracetamol. <laughs> then, as a physical demonstration of how well I deal with pain, I projectile puked and puked and puked all around the room like an exorcist. A, a day's worth of decaf coffee and a hardly chewed sandwich flying all over everywhere. Look at me with my amazing strength and coping. Why did I ever, ever think I was good with pain? Where the fuck did I get that arrogant, ignorant notion from? I thought about it afterwards and thought, why did I think that? I've never even broken a bone. I haven't even got my ears pierced. I'd never, ever felt any real pain until then. Why did I think I'd be calm when actually now, thinking about it, every single time I've even ever stubbed my toe, I've shouted and sworn, fuck out! I'm not a calm person. I wish, I wish I'd actually known what to expect would be unbearable, actually unbearable pain, and that I could have had them known for months in advance I need drugs, lots and lots of drugs, rather than feeling like a classic wanker with this birth plan that essentially said, don't you dare try and force pain relief on me. I'm actually already a powerhouse. <laughs> None of my pain was out of the ordinary. 353,000 women are experiencing that same pain now. And a lot of them will be managing that same pain. Fine. <laughs> I wasn't a powerhouse, I was a mug. 
Now, those of you in the know about these things would be, or not in the know about these things, would be, how is she remembering all this? This story can't be true. It is, uh, because actually, after you have a baby, you do forget everything. You get hormone rush that erases all of those memories for you. It's the reason why people have more than one baby. It's like eternal sunshine of the spotless womb. <laughs> but I wrote it all down. I wrote it all down, blow by blow, before my womb got wiped. <laughs> we'll do this quick, for all our sakes. The next eight hours there were a blur, but I didn't go home. We were put into a room and occasionally visited by a volunteer, but not a medically qualified person who could administer any drugs. I never got any drugs. It turns out that the hospital was brutally understaffed that night. I howled and contorted and felt so frightened I wanted anything to stop the pain. I wanted to die, and I roared that request at anyone who would listen. I remember overhearing various people whispering to each other after briefly a midwife's head would pop in and they'd say, she just isn't labouring very well. Yeah, no shit. (laughs) But there was nothing abnormal about this, nothing. I just wasn't very good at it. And it wasn't until my blood pressure was rising and the baby's heart rate dropped that meant both of our lives were in danger that we got any attention at all. We were rushed into a hospital room and with no pain relief, I repeat, no epidural. I had an episiotomy. If you don't know, don't ask. A ventouse, that's like a plunger to try and unblock the baby from my birth canal, like you would a toilet. And then when that failed, forceps. And they did pull the baby out with the most disgusting pop sound that I have ever heard. And at 2.17am on the 17th of October 2015, my son was born. Initially, he only scored one out of ten on his APGAR test, which means he was dead. That's the test they do to see how alive you are. After five minutes, he was at four out of ten. Then after six minutes, he was at ten out of ten. Then my boyfriend, who'd been calm throughout all of this, lost his mind and cried his soul up out through his eyes and couldn't stop for hours and hours until I had to ask him to go home, where he went and cried for seven more hours. (laughs) I am very fit and well, and my son is a giant, happy, healthy two-and-a-half-year-old unit. A lot of therapy later, I understand now that I am someone who struggles to say yes to help. As a result of the true story I've just told you, I'm working very, very, very hard to change that. (laughs) That was... That was totally brilliant. And... uh... And it's so important to tell those stories because otherwise, you know, you just say, oh, no, it was fine or, oh, it was a lot of blood, but no, actually, it was in the end, it was fine. It's so important to other... I mean, obviously, if you're pregnant, you shouldn't listen to that. But, (laughs) you know, if you have had an experience like that, it's so important to share our stories. And listen, I haven't had a baby, but it does sound a lot like the first time I had a Brazilian wax. (laughs) (laughs) Our guest today who I'm just so excited to bring on, are the creators of an amazing play. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's the best piece of theatre I've ever seen. And I've been subjected to a lot of theatre over the years. (laughs) But this play was absolutely incredible. I went with my flatmate, Steve Alley, who some of you might know from Grown Up Land. Uh, And see, those people are happy. They're cheering. You should listen to it. Um, And Steve is from Syria. And uh, he lived in the Calais jungle for a year after being a refugee for four years. We went to see another play before this that sort of had similar content. And I was worried Steve would be triggered. And Steve laughed and said to me, if you're taking me into a war zone, I'll be triggered. If I'm going to the theatre, I'm having a great day. Now, (laughs) he was not triggered by that first play we saw. In fact, he fell asleep. That's how untriggered he was. So when we went to see this play, we were sort of joking about being triggered. And we came out of that play. It was the most extraordinary play. It's funny. It's hopeful. It's full of humanity. It's not just unrelentingly bleak in any way. 
But we came out, all of us who went to see it, we went in a group, and we all came out a bit shell-shocked and devastated. And it was a story that completely changed my engagement and my level of activation around the refugee crisis. As some of you will know, we've done comics for Calais and various things. A lot of that, to be honest, is because I saw this play. But also, it's just an absolutely brilliant piece of theatre. I'm so excited and feel very, very privileged that we have the writers and two of the actors here today. So please, please put your hands together and welcome the creators and some of the cast of The Jungle. It's Joe Murphy, Joe Robertson, Amma Hajjabad, and Nahel Sargai. wherever the two Joes are sitting separately so the writers are Joe there and Joe there okay. we have Amma there who Amar Amar if I said that correctly Amar and this is Nahel hi am I saying that correctly um no <laughs> <laughs> I'm so bad I'm like a horse that comes to a jump and then freaks out and goes no I'm not gonna get it wrong you've honestly done better than a lot of people I get Nahal how do you say it Nahel. And how do you say your surname? Because I may have said it incorrectly. Well, in English, because I have to translate That's what I'm speaking, it. yes. Yeah. So I'm very much hoping for that. You can say Tez guy, but the original is a guy, but you Oh, that's what I said. That's you what did, I said. I, I know, right. it was really close. I was so proud of you. I respect you. <gasps> to, please do you know what? say it again. Tz-guy. A guy. I'm so Tz-guy. happy. So happy. So this play is about the construction and deconstruction of the Calais Jungle refugee camp. If you were listening internationally, a lot of refugees came to Calais and they started camping there and then they built basically like a small city. There was restaurants, there was a theatre run by the Joes, there was a mosque, a church and all sorts of other facilities and then the French government, uh, for no reason anyone can really understand, uh, decided to dismantle it and that's what the play is about. It's about the construction and deconstruction of the Calais Jungle. Uh, So Joe and Joe, I can't help noticing you're white men. And you've written this play about the refugee experience. Could you please tell us what led you to this place? You know, it was that time in 2015 when we we were watching the news and sort of aghast all these pictures and videos of people travelling and arriving in Europe in their droves. And there were all these news reports and tweets and articles online about these people. But for us, you know, the questions that we had, you know, who are they, where are they coming from, what, where are they going towards, weren't being answered. And we sort of made the probably naive decision to just go and find out and didn't expect to stay in the jungle at all, expected to go on to Munich, which is where the story was then, and found in Calais, as you say, this city, a city of, I think at that time, 8,000 people from 25 different countries, all sort of living together in this place. And lots of volunteers as well from Britain and from Germany and France, sort of trying, in lieu of any big NGO or any government, trying to make the lives of the people living there a bit better. And, you know, that's sort of what the play is really about. It's about who we are and who everyone was there in that place and who has the right to decide to go and help and to do something, I suppose. So how long did you live in the jungle? Seven months. 
uh, running this theatre, as you say. But and what's the name of the theatre? Uh, it was called Good Chance because Good Chance was a phrase that people used a lot to describe the likelihood of getting to the UK that night. So a lot of people would say, oh, tonight's a really good chance because they thought there were a lot of lorries going past or a lot of trains or tonight, no, no chance, no chance. So we'll try somewhere else. We thought we would give people a different kind of good chance. In reality, we set this theatre up and it was run by everybody. So yes, we're two white men, but the story started and it was everybody making and stuff together. By everyone. I think people there definitely needed food and shelter and accommodation, but as well mm. as that, you know, I think we all need a place, it's exactly what you talk about with stories, a place we can go to reflect on the situation we're in and, and reflect on what's happening to us. And, and tell the story to process what's happening. Yeah. And, and it, so you worked with refugees there, so they joined in your theatre company yeah. and did theatre with you. Did you put plays on for refugees or did you, mm. you do theatre with refugees? It was very much, we tried to avoid the idea that we would come and present things to refugees that we... Made Just do theater. your red and brow. Yeah, yeah. We, we thought, <laughs> do you know what, we're, we're, we're here and we're all going to make Hey, we had together. Iranian stand-up comedy from some great comics. And, Kung Fu. Uh, yeah, Kung, Kung Fu, Kung uh, Ethiopian circus, um, you know, the stories people told, which I think, far be it for me to talk, the experience of a refugee, but it seems that when you are forced to flee, so many of your stories are taken from you. So a place where people could actually reclaim those narratives safely and warmly and in a place that welcomed them was quite important and we met some of the best friends that we've ever met there also certain journalists shall we say like are dehumanizing those people who were there and actually you would wish food and shelter on any creature but actually the stuff that makes humans more complex than animals is to be treated in a way where you thrive on creativity and community and autonomy. all of the yeah, the, well, those things that are you can tell above story. and beyond. Yeah, well, you know. And that's what really stood out in the play to me was the human being's ability to decorate and celebrate wherever they are. Mm. And they will find a way, they will find a way to decorate. And we, when we walked in, because it's all set in one of the Calais jungle restaurants. So you're actually sitting at a table and you're in an area. So it's not like row B, 34. You're in Iraq, 34, or Afghanistan, 34. I went with a load of people who'd either been refugees or volunteers in the jungle. And what I saw them when they were walking in going like this because the iconography was so identical and so perfect that they were like, they were triggered, I suppose. They were into like, oh my God, it's like being back in the jungle. And they were kind of like a little bit freaked out. And that was, it was so beautifully done. So what you guys have done is you've told a number of stories so spectacularly beautifully and weaved them all together that you really do feel. Amma, you play, it's an ensemble piece, but like a lead character. Yes. Say no. it. <laughs> own it, own it. Yeah, own I, it. I, I a think... driving force in an ensemble. I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, uh, yeah, I play the narrator narrates the story and part, like, one of the characters in the story. What drew you to it? To be honest, I was invited many times to go to the jungle. I am myself a Syrian refugee, but I've never been to the jungle, and I didn't want to go to the jungle. I was invited a few times because I'm not in the victorious side of the story in this world, in a way. I'm, I was still defeated. I was trying to find my ways in London. So I said, I think if I'll go there, I'll rather distort than to support you know you just didn't feel ready to no, go and engage not at all. yeah and then one day i was invited to the workshop with joe joe stephen daltrey and justin martin and some other actors and refugees from the jungle and i realized that with good chance theater and the joes 
it's a great thing to see the potential in refugees rather than victims. Actually, you know, we, it's so easy to support with like physical support or shelter, but sometimes people need support inwardly to feel that they can integrate and they can give. And of course, from the other side, from the refugee side, we, if I can say we, need to as well try to understand this culture because sometimes we need to give as well. And giving mainly by understanding and by being generous to accept. And it's not easy, it's hard. So what was happening, what drew me to the play and to work with these people is completely, and I'm not now preaching or anything, it's to kindness and love. It's so important. And of course it's hard for Joe and Joe to go to the characters and their past because they met Eritrean people in the jungle. They met Syrian people in the jungle. So when they come to write about these characters, of course they need to open as well to what we bring from our culture when we talk and about it. And so did this. you develop it together? Did you workshop and develop it together? Yeah, we decided that we wanted to tell this story the whole time in the jungle and that that is a way of being able to explore so many of the different stories and people involved in this massive crisis. But... You know, we could never have done that on our own, and we, right from the start, invited lots of the people who worked in the theatre, in the camp, and then brilliant, brilliant actors living here who are the life and blood of the play and the story and have been right from the beginning. Naha, was your, you play an Eritrean refugee? Yes. Did you help develop the character? Were you part of that collaborative process? Yeah, absolutely. And you are Eritrean? I am Eritrean, yes. Did you go to the jungle at all? I didn't go to the jungle, and actually... It was, I wouldn't say similar reasons to Amar, but my mother had gone past Calais and she went to a hospital and there were loads of Eritrean people who had been hurt inside the jungle. And just seeing her pain and knowing that I myself am extremely sensitive, I didn't know how helpful I could be by going there. I don't know, part of me does regret not going actually now that I'm doing the play, just because I feel like maybe I could have been of use. You know, funnily enough, we went out and we volunteered in the day mm. and then at night we did a show for the volunteers who... It's like the media's forgotten Calais because mm. the jungle's not there anymore. Yeah. So morale is quite down and the CRS, the sort of French, very aggressive French police, uh, keep smashing things up and taking tents and sleeping bags. So we thought we'd do a show because they don't have any money, they never get a night out. And that's yeah. what we did. And Susie Bacoma came over and I really wanted her to speak about it because we talked about it at the 100th episode and she was in New York but she made a video for us which we're going to put out and we will get it back on the show to talk about it because she said when she got out of the bus with all the volunteers, all the other volunteers were white and she said all of these guys, Eritrean guys came over to her and were like, where are you from, where are you from? And um, she was like, London. They were like, where are you really from? And she was like, am I in an Uber? And, uh, um, but she had, I will let her tell it on the show herself because it's so funny. But she came back. She made a plea for more people of colour to go out and volunteer because she said there is a different sort of transaction going on sometimes when white people en masse hand out grace and favour, it can feel noblesse oblige. This is not in any way to say don't go out if you're white. Please do, please do. <laughs> But she said she felt an evenness of status. So she is trying to get more people of colour to go out and volunteer. I'm absolutely down for that. Um, Excellent. Because, you know, I have to say I do agree with Susie. And that's one of the main reasons why I regret not going. Because I speak the language. I'm able to communicate 
with people from my background. It is not too late. There are so many Eritrean people Absolutely. Out there. And on this side as well. So my mum works with a lot of young uh, refugees who were in the Cali jungle who are Eritrean as well. And just talking to them and seeing that, you know, it would have been really, really, really nice to have someone from their own background there. I met a stand-up comedian when I was out there who was Eritrean. Oh, wow. And he said he was an actor in stand-up. And I said to him, oh, I really want you to come to the UK because I've got the show Global Pillage. And I started telling him about it. And he went, oh, my English probably isn't good enough. And I said, no, 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 it, it will be. You know, your English, his English was a lot better than my, what do they speak in Eritrea? I can't remember the name of the language now. Tigrinya. Say it again. Tigrinya. Okay, for the edit. (laughs) (laughs) My English is a lot better than his... (laughs) His English... His English is way better than I speak any other language. And... And I was like, no, no, it will be. But he just... I said, well, look, I'm going to give you my email because also I think, you, you know, you have a great story and I was telling you about the Edinburgh Festival and I really, really want you to come over and, you know, please get in touch with me. And he was like, sure. <laughs> and he didn't take my email. And I had to go over and sort of force it on him, which some people may say, you know, don't do that in a nightclub, obviously. But <laughs> I was like... I was saying afterwards to Sarah Pascoe, I was He's like... so formal in a nightclub. <laughs> <then>. <laughs> Do you like my fishnets? <laughs> this is my landline number. <laughs> Email swapping in a nightclub. You know what I mean? But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I said no wonder to, he didn't take it. I said to, I said to Sarah Pascoe, like, he just couldn't... It was like he couldn't believe it, like he couldn't get his hopes up. He was just like like that will never happen sort of thing and Sarah said yeah it's like if you said to me listen you go to Mars and I'll go to Venus then we'll do this sort of Skype global pillage I'd be like sure Deb yeah okay it was like determination was strong but hope was in short supply and one of the most amazing things about your play is the first act is so incredibly full of hope and you get swept along in the hope and the second act obviously I don't want to spoil but careful then (laughs) no I don't want to spoil it but it's pretty pretty fucking devastating and uh, but it's what's important is that it has levity it has jokes it has funny characters and it has all of the hope of the jungle and I remember the only bit that I went "Uh, is that plausible at the time was when everyone started doing you know sort of Middle Eastern dancing and I was like really Middle Eastern dancing and then I went to Steve's birthday party and I went oh no that is the, what they do I'm so sorry I apologise I remember on New Year's Eve in the jungle we did for every countdown for every of the country's time zones represented in the camp and that was oh. that, that dancing went on for about 12 hours so that wow was absolutely amazing that's really nice also um, you guys were saying before we started this that as well as the play there's a, an album of music that's coming out as well that some of the cast have started making together i don't know how much i can talk about the album but uh, so some it's some... out in mid-june <laughs> <laughs> you can buy it at the show, at the show. Yeah. So, yeah called sounds of refuge and uh, some of our it's actors called, have yeah. created it recorded at uh, abbey road which is pretty amazing Ooh, did you yeah. stop it right now no th- it's incredible you know in abbey road studios there are different studios but there are seven mics in Abbey Road Studios, and these mics, they circle them around, the, so any band, anyone can use them. 
and they were used by the Beatles. So uh, it's it's wow. incredible. I came from a tiny village in Syria, and I read my poem on a mic that was used by the Beatles. And it's I'm, I'm, I'm hoping John Lennon or Paul McCartney it would be a shame if you got the George Harrison one. Just. <laughs> oh. But yeah, just I'm because... kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Oh God! All right, it was a joke. Ringo. I'm okay. Ringo Starr. Ringo, thank you. That's okay. the crap one, isn't it? Yeah, it's a crap Beatle. Um, your show—it's quite a male story because the Women and Children's Centre is separate, and there were Eritrean women in the jungle, but a lot of the women from other nationalities were in the Women and Children's Centre. Is this correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So, do you think there's room for another play that is about the Women and Children's Centre? Because it feels like a lot of the stories that are being told about refugees at the moment are male, mm. and that's really why I very much wanted Nahel to come on, mm. because your part was so vivid in my mind and you and Amma are the ones I remember the most but I remember your power and your drive as a woman in this very male environment mm-hmm. why is it the Eritrean women were not in the women and children's center do you know I kind of felt like it was because just of our history really there is a strong sense of community in the Eritrean community I used community twice <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah and so I felt like it was because the women themselves in Eritrea are so powerful and they feel so independent from the men because during the war with Ethiopia, the women essentially fought on the front line with the men. Mm. So they were very visible and their role in society kind of transcends gender in that sense. I felt like they felt comfortable to be alone. Mm. Whereas maybe some of the other women who came from different backgrounds, they come from traditions where women have to be not so visible, if that makes sense. I really would like to see more theatre coming from female refugees, and I'm sure we will see that over yeah, the, next, so. f- uh, the I, next few years. Can I just say there is a scene where I really love when the first time we see Nahel playing Helen, and then one of the elders says, why is she in my restaurant? He mm. asks me. And then Nahel says, she is called Helen. And then he says, where's her husband? And she says, I don't need a husband to come to this meeting. It was very impactful. And although it's a predominantly male play, it is a very feminist play in its way. Mm. Any questions from the audience? You got anything you want to ask about the play, the jungle, story in general, storytelling? Go on. Or Jessica's pregnancy? Price. <laughs> I have a lot of questions. Um, if there, I have a question. As much as I agree wholeheartedly that there's room also for more stories from women in this situation, also it sounds like there could be the potential for a very successful eight-hour dancing fitness video. <laughs> you are a genius. Money, money, money. Yes, that's actually a really good point. Help the... We are going to do a Syrian dancing fundraiser for Syria because... Um, <laughs> we're not. Oh! <laughs> cool, 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 cool. I'll be there, mate. Oh, I'll be there. No, I'll, be there. I'll tell you why, yeah. and then you're going to feel really bad. No, I already do. <laughs> um, no, Steve... Okay, so what happened was some of Steve's friends were doing this... It's a bit like Hayley dancing but they were doing it brilliantly, that in a way that if... I mean, I'm sure there were some Scottish people who would brilliantly Kaylee dance, but it seemed like they could all do, all of the guys at Steve's party could all do this sort of immaculate dancing. 
And I was like, how come everyone's so good at this? And Steve said, actually, well, I can't. I said, why aren't you dancing? He said, it's not really a Damascus thing. It's sort of, I'm from Damascus and it's the city and we, you know, there's other things to do here. There's shops. And um, he, said this, he said, it's from the country where there's, that's literally all they have. And uh, he said it in that patronising voice as well. If you are listening and you are a fan of Steve's, that's what he's really like. And uh, he said, so I can't really do it. And then... The lads came and pulled him up because it was his birthday. And then he perfectly did this dance. It was like watching a Syrian Lord of the Dance. It was, it was Michael Flatley from Damascus. And I was like... Then when he came up to me, I said, you said you couldn't do it. He said, oh, well, I learnt in the jungle. He said, I learnt two... But he said, there are six kinds of Syrian dancing and I only know two and a half. And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, yeah, I just blag it. I just blag it. I don't really know. But he said, those guys are really good. So I said, what would be fun is if we went, you know, the English folk dance in Camden. Because what happened that night is, to be fair, we were at the Ephra Social. And they're so sweet. They came up and knocked on the door and went, because it's really stamping, very, very stampy. And they said, we love the dancing, love the dancing, love the dancing. But the chef is just saying that the ceiling is falling into the soup. So... If you could do less of the actual stomping, that would be very useful. And uh, so then they had to sort of curb the stomping and just do the dancing. So sweet of them that they didn't ban it altogether. Anyway, so I said, we should learn how to do this because, I mean, we would do this big Comics for Calais fundraiser, but that's sort of us going, let's use our skill and then raise money and then we'll give it to you. And it goes so back at this to fundraiser, could we learn the dance? That's what I'm saying, babe. Yes, please. <laughs> Because so, if you grew up in the countryside here, we had to do country dancing at school as well. Did you? Yes. But are you really Swing good Swing your partner them? round and round. Yeah. I'm just, maybe I'll have some of the base skills, even though I'd always, always get paired with Naughty John. In our theatres, it's always about sharing and sharing your different cultures. But I realise the only cultural dance that I know is probably the Hokey Cokey. Oh, no, it's sad. And, and what's that other one where it's left, right foot, left stomp? Left foot, that's the... I don't know any... Don't that's know. the sexiest of them Morris all, at dancing, least, maybe, Well, what we, what we want to do is these guys are so good at it, and I just thought it's nicer, actually, if they're leading it. Do you know what I mean? If, if the Syrian guys I know who are they'll incredibly capable... They'll yeah, need they'll to. They'll definitely need to lead it. But if the Syrian-Iraqi guys teach us how to do it... And then we make that a fundraiser for... There's a hospital in Aleppo that the current pop-up restaurant um, yes. is supporting. They help refugees pop-up restaurant. If you haven't been, it's absolutely amazing. Um, it's absolutely, we had our big cast dinner there the other night. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. It's incredible. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Where is that, sorry? If you go on the helprefugees.org, you can find the pop-up restaurant. It's in East London. I highly recommend it. And by the way, Help Refugees are, are the partner on this play, and we're working with them to raise money. We're going to create a jungle fund to try and fund four different projects that they uh, <gasps> work on all around oh. Europe. And, yeah, we're all doing it together. And that's so where that's the pop-up really restaurant amazing. is. You've, Jess has focused in on the food, I feel. <laughs> Sorry, what was that about the... No, pop-up restaurant. It's an amazing, amazing place. A Syrian chef who cooked in the jungle is cooking the most incredible falafel you've ever had. Like, it's just melt in your mouth. Mm. I don't really like falafel, and I put it in my mouth, and I thought I'm, angels were crying <laughs> on my tongue. Um, so please do go and support that, as a side note. But I just thought it's really, really nice if we are learning something... You see refugees in boats, always pictured as incapable, need help. And refugees I know are the most capable people I know because they've had to be. Someone has a question here. My question is, we're talking about telling our own stories to encourage others. How do you cope with your own emotions while telling what is, I'm assuming, quite a powerful story? Do you have any advice for how people can actually do that without feeling overwhelmed? Actors, how do you do it? Because I just cry through it. (laughs) That's not very helpful. Um, I sit with the feelings first, whatever comes up. And then 
I just have to throw it out. That's it. Because then I can't tell the story. I can't write the story. And essentially, if you are trying to tell your own story, you have to be really present with everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, the sexist babies, just everything. <laughs> so, yeah, that would be my advice. Just be present in it, sit in it. Um, sorry, do you have any ways that you, you do that? Is it talking it through with yourself? Or? There's this thing I do, actually. It's from the artist's way. So every morning I wake up, because I'm really good at like being an artist. <laughs> so, so good. <laughs> so for the first 10 minutes that you wake up, you just stream of consciousness, just write whatever it is that comes to your mind. It's called pages. Yeah. <laughs> Jess is also a good artist. I just yeah. go on Facebook. I'm not a good artist. <laughs> <laughs> And, yeah, you just see whatever comes up from there, like, whatever your blocks are. So when you do sit down to write the story, even when the things come up, you're able to just look at your notes and be like, okay, this is what I struggle with. But am I making sense? Because yeah. Yeah, no, 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 right now, great. this is feeling very stream of consciousness. <laughs> just before you go on stage, if you're feeling a bit wobbly and you know you've got to do a big scene, mm-hmm. is there anything you do? Do you breathing? Or is there anything you do to focus or do you put it out of your mind or focus on it? Or I focus on the purpose. Because I know that, especially with this play, it's bigger than me. It's not about me. And as you were saying earlier, the beauty of this play is that the people who are statistics, we humanise them. Mm. So it's, okay, I need to tell the story for her. And any kind of emotions or nervousness that I feel, I just inject it into that mm. thing. It gives it more passion. Mm. Oh, my God, I'm so deep. <laughs> <laughs> And on that one very last question, do you have any advice, Joe and Joe and Emma, do you have any advice about telling, because you're the narrator and you were the writers of this story, Mm. do you have any advice for people who would like to shape or tell their own story or stories they've heard that they think will be powerful in the world as tools for feminism or humanitarianism? What advice do you have? Just advice as well, get help. I, th- I think get as much help as possible. Tell it to different people. The reason our theatre was a success is because it, we get at every moment everyone on board to help. Always ask for help from everyone. I think. I, th- I think as well. Go out into the world and actually, when you think you've understood something that's happening, you're nowhere near the beginning of it. So you've got to keep living and listening and yeah, trying to understand and then when you're completely weary and dead, then you've got to the end. <laughs> Being in the guilty feminist and talking about stories, I think straight away by the best feminist storyteller ever, uh, Shahrazad. Oh. Um, who's, through the storytelling, she saved the girls of the kingdom. Yes. And Does everyone know the story, Shahrazada? Arabian Nights or, or A Thousand and One Nights? Yeah, and not the library story because it's very beautified. The brutal, really strong story is how Shahrazad did that with her younger sister, Dunyazad. And it's incredible. So this is one thing, that the urgency of telling a story. It's important. And I think, I do believe that what we owe each other in life as a human is to share stories. That's how we know each other. And when we tell stories, it's really important not to think about the cohesion. To just do it like children. They tell you a story and it's not coherent. But when we get older, 
we start to try to tell a coherent story because we don't want the other to lose interest. But actually, sometimes we trim what we think, oh, it's not interesting, and we exaggerate what we think is interesting. And I'm sure it happened with everyone that later the listener would say, you were telling me about that, and they are interested in what you actually trimmed. So just say yourself, and it's really important to be vulnerable, not weak, just, you know. And uh, telling stories require being open and kind and loving the listener and being generous. And yeah, it's all about sharing, really. And there is nothing more valuable and priceless. It's sharing my story is what I have in my life, you know. So when I tell someone a story, it's really important to, to remember that this it's human. This is the main thing. So, yeah. I'm sorry, I Thank could you, go Anna. forever. No, no, that's wonderful. Everybody, the team from the jungle! Could somebody please plug exactly the dates of the jungle, the play, and tell us where it is? The Jungle opens on the 16th of June at the Playhouse Theatre in London and it runs until... The 3rd of November. Third and November. where can wow. people get tickets? You can get tickets at... The Jungle... Play.co.uk Ben, is that accurate anyway? Ben, where are you? Is that accurate? Yeah. Can we say it in one line? Just for... You say it, Amma. www.thejungleplay.co.uk Okay, so go to thejungleplay.co.uk when you get home, book a group load of tickets, and then message your friends and say, this is the date you're coming with me, and this is how much you owe me. Uh, (laughs) Because they will all love it. Bring as many people as you can. Now, if you have your own blog or podcast or television network... um, if you have a radio show, anything like that, and you are listening, please, please, please spread the word because we want to sell this out because, honestly, everyone just should see it because I really think it is going to shift our humanity collectively. And if you have something that you think, oh, actually, we could publicise this or uh, we could review this or we'd be interested in, in putting this on our platform, please go to The Corner Shop, which is the PR company, and ask for Ben. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. Because if you're listening, say you've got a brilliant Radio 4 show or something like that and you'd like to interview any of these guys, you really should. Just do what you can to spread the word and do not miss it. If you are anywhere in the vicinity near London or can get to London, please, please, please don't miss it. We're in rehearsal right now. All the pictures of us rehearsing and follow how we're getting on. These amazing people. On Twitter, The Jungle LDN. LDN. I think so. The Jungle LDN. Okay, so follow it, get behind it, get involved. Um, Jess, do you have anything to plug? Yes, I have a podcast all about eating called Hoovering. Great, absolutely, listen, it's fantastic, especially this new episode. And I would like to plug Grown Up Land, BBC Radio 4 podcast that we make with some amazing people, and also uh, Global Pillage, new episodes at the moment, globalpillage.net. And to keep track of everything we're up to, Instagram, Twitter, give us five stars. You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Jessica Foster-Pierre and our very special guests, the creators and some of the cast of The Jungle. The recording engineer was Chris Sharp. The music was by Mark Hodge. The producer was Tom Selinski for The Spontaneity Shop. Thanks 
to Zoe Jacobs, Sally, and everyone at King's Place, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit GuiltyFabulous.com. I'm going to ask you that again for the edit, because otherwise it's going to be, Tom's going to want to cut out all that hair stuff. I know him. <laughs>